0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com and Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I want to wish everyone a very happy Valentine's Day. We've got an important show today for airline people and for travelers. We'll talk to Mike Swiatek, the Chief Strategy and Planning Officer at Avianca, not only about airline strategy, but also about travel accessibility for people with disabilities. Mike is blind and a strong advocate for great accessibility and travel in ways that are very practical to airlines too. And we're gonna spend a lot of time today talking about aviation safety after what seems like a rash of heart-stopping incidents. These incidents appear to show a lack of situational awareness on the part of pilots and, in one case, air traffic controllers. I know you wrote a lot about aviation safety in your Wall Street Journal career, Scott. And so I think that you agree in this area of incredible safety and air travel, complacency might be the biggest threat to safety.
2: Absolutely, Ben. And happy Valentine's week. Back to you. We're gonna talk about some of those failures that do raise alarms for the entire industry. We're also gonna talk about an airline Super Bowl ad and more about family seating and President Biden's attack on airlines, where he said during his State of the Union address that airlines were treating children like a piece of baggage. I wanna talk about the industry's response to that. And I'm really looking forward to talking with Mike Swiatek, who has a lot of experience at different airlines and really great insights into air travel.
1: Well, let's start with that Super Bowl ad you mentioned. United ran an ad in Denver markets attacking Southwest over its Christmas meltdown. Southwest was a mess in Denver, that's been well documented, and United recovered from the storm well and operated well in the extreme cold. So United does have a good story to tell and told it in Denver on the biggest stage of the year. It's rare for one airline to attack another. Things can certainly turn quickly, and suddenly you are the airline on the defensive, not the bragging one. In my career, we had instances at the airlines I've worked at, including Spirit, where we were put on the defensive, but tried to sort of get on the offense as well as we could quickly, rather than let that issue drag us down. I think this move by United, Scott, was because they've always been scared of Southwest. If you look at where United is really big, Chicago, San Francisco, Houston, all of California, Southwest is really big in all those places with Midway, Hobby, California in a big way, maybe not so much Newark. But I think A little while ago when United got rid of change fees, that was an attack on Southwest. I think Scott Kirby was saying, I can match your frequency, Southwest. I can give people things you can't give them, but you're easier to use, Southwest. Because you don't have change fees, so I'm going to get rid of my change fees so I can be easier to use too. I think Southwest has been in the crosshairs of United for a while, especially since Scott has been the CEO, but I'm still surprised that they would run a Super Bowl ad picking on Southwest. That's a shock to me, Scott.
2: Hmm. That's fascinating, Ben. Ben. Under Scott Kirby, I'm not as, as shocked at United's brashness, um, and I'm not bothered that United has gotten brash, um, in effect, violating the old rules of aviation civility. Um, it's, it's fun. Uh, Denver is a hyper-competitive market, and I'm glad to see rough and tumble competition. But I agree with you about Southwest getting under United's skin, and I would fully expect Southwest to strike back when it gets its house in order. It's going to be, how about those bag fees, United? And how about your credits arbitrarily expiring after one year? And how about those fees to get seats together for a family? Ben, President Biden and Congress are seemingly on a crusade about this. We've talked about this before. What I found new this week was that Airlines for America, the industry's lobbying group in Washington, declared in a statement that airlines don't charge fees to sit together. That's a lie in practice. Several times I wrote stories showing how airlines display different seat availability maps to different customers based on the status of the customer. If you don't have status, often, and I mean often, a customer will be presented a seat map where the only free seats are middle seats. Other open aisle and window seats are labeled preferred and require a fee to reserve even in the back of the airplane. That customer has to pay a fee to get two or three seats together. The airline is offering no other choice, even though the airline knows the age of the passengers and could put families in a separate booking path. So when A4A says airlines don't charge fees to sit together, that may be correct in theory, but it's wrong in practice. It's misleading, and I don't think it helps the industry's cause in Washington.
1: I think that's right, Scott. There's a coffee shop on the grounds of the National Cathedral where parking is very limited. But this coffee shop has like three spots, and they say parking for customers only of the Open City Cafe. And one time, my wife and I were going to something at the Cathedral. And I started to pull into one of those spots. And my wife said, you can't park there. This is for customers of Open City Cafe. And I said, we go there all the time. We're clearly customers. It doesn't say customers right now of Open City Cafe. And we left and I put the car in reverse and didn't park there. <laughs> but, but my point is, I think that's what A4A is doing. They're saying, even in your case, Scott, the middle seat's free. So book your kid in there and parent you by the window and aisle next to him. And I do think it's misleading, but I do think that's the kind of approach they took.
2: I think it'll be interesting to hear from Mike Zwiatek over his career, what he's seen in terms of regulation that's come in when the industry hasn't responded. I think this is one of those cases where the industry needs to be proactive uh, before there's regulation that makes things costlier and more difficult. Ben, I want to talk about some disturbing aviation safety news this week, because I think this is really important. We're going to talk later in the show about listener response to a comment aviation attorney Mark Dombroff made about the causes of the 2009 Colgan crash near Buffalo, New York. But in the past week, we learned some terrifying details about a near collision between two airplanes in Austin, Texas, as well as a scary incident in Qatar, where a Boeing 787 climbing out of Doha at 2 a.m., Lost 1,000 feet in altitude and was only 850 feet above the water before resuming its climb. This comes on the heels of the American runway incursion at JFK, where a 777 taxied into the path of a Delta jet on its takeoff roll. And I think this is all worth talking about because each incident seems to scream lack of situational awareness and complacency. The industry needs to pay attention. Let's look at the Austin incident, which really shows the best and worst of aviation safety today at the same time. The Austin control tower cleared a FedEx 767 to land, and then when the FedEx was 3.2 miles out, cleared a Southwest 737 to take off from the same runway, 18 left. We know this from the NTSB preliminary report this past week, and from tapes of controller-pilot communications posted by LiveATC.net. There was only a quarter-mile visibility at the time, so the tower couldn't see the end of 18 left, and Austin doesn't have any ground radar. About three miles out, the 767 is going to touch down in less than a minute and a half. The FedEx crew, showing great situational awareness, asks the tower to confirm 18 left after it hears the tower clear southwest to take off on the same runway. FedEx is only about two miles out at that point, and the tower confirms 18 left and says traffic departing prior to your arrival. About one minute after giving the southwest plane takeoff clearance, the tower asks if southwest is rolling. Rolling now is the response. Clearly, the tower was concerned about a conflict, but not nearly concerned enough to take action. Just 20 seconds later, the FedEx plane calls, Southwest abort, FedEx is on the go. Disaster is averted. The NTSB says the planes likely came within 100 feet of each other. The NTSB also noted that it was the FedEx pilot who realized he was about to land on top of a 737 And FedEx took action on its own to avert disaster. It wasn't the air traffic controller who called abort. It's worth listening to the full recording. At the end, after FedEx goes around and lands, the tower says, you have our apologies and we appreciate your professionalism. That's chilling, Ben. The FedEx crew showed outstanding situational awareness and airmanship. The air traffic controller, on the other hand, seems unaware and ineffective. Flying can be hours and hours of routine punctuated by moments of sheer terror. It has gotten so safe and so automated that the biggest threat is now complacency, simply not paying attention or not worrying enough about the risks and getting sloppy. Austin, Doha, JFK, they're all wake-up calls to airlines that we need to do more to stay safe. What do you think, Ben?
1: I agree 100% Scott. That Austin situation that you just outlined is scary in so many ways. What if that FedEx pilot just accepted the controller saying the traffic will be gone by then? Right? Think of the disaster that could have happened in that case. Thankfully, those pilots were very aware, listening to what was going on around them. And in other instances that we've seen, I don't know what caused the altitude drop in Doha. That's a scary thing mechanically. What caused that? And is there something that goes back to something in the maintenance or another procedure that was done wrong or something. But I agree with the general concept that complacency is the biggest risk to safety. We can just get so comfortable, like you said, with the way things work. But I think we see that in our own lives, Scott. How many times maybe have you been driving and listening to the radio, hopefully not texting on your phone, but all of a sudden realize, wow, I've gone two miles and don't even remember that I was driving so much, right? You don't even think about it that much.
2: No, that's absolutely right. Uh, we, we get so used to routine, so comfortable with it that we, we don't think about it. We, we don't know yet what happened in Doha. The airline says it's doing an internal investigation I don't know that we'll ever know. Uh, some of the pilot forums that I've looked at have suggested that the, the first officer was hand flying. Um, it, it's it's hard to speculate about these things, uh, but it is possible. There, it's it's dark at night. They're they're over water. That the, the pilot um, may have simply gotten disoriented, or um, made a wrong uh, input setting, or just wasn't paying attention. Uh, there could be many factors, but a perfectly functional seven eight seven that soon after takeoff at that low an altitude should not drop a thousand feet and should be uh, nowhere near under a thousand feet close to the water. That could have been disaster I think it, uh, there have also been reports that uh, the passengers on board uh, realized they were descending right after takeoff and um, were terribly frightened. Um, But I hope we learn more about that episode, and mostly because I think each of these episodes, the industry can learn more about what to watch out for and what precautions need to be taken, um, what changes need to be made.
1: You know, Scott, it would be a good show, I think, to bring on a VP of safety at an airline and just talk about what are the things that airlines can do to reduce complacency and make sure that even in a long day and even in a routine operation, how to always be aware of the situation. Situational awareness is obviously a huge part of pilot training, and yet it falls apart sometime. So if you're the head of safety at a big airline, I'm sure you're worried about that.
2: Absolutely. Look forward to it.
1: Well, Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors who bring you this podcast all year long. We want to thank Sidley Austin. Sidley is the go-to law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. And Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. We're very excited to have with us today Mike Swiatek. Mike and I have known each other for a long time, even though we haven't worked together all that much. He's the Chief Strategy and Planning Officer for the Avianca Group, and he's also Chairman of the Accessibility Working Group at IATA. Mike, it's great to have you here. Why don't you give our listeners a bigger view of what your whole background really is, too?
3: Thank you, Ben and Scott. Uh, This opportunity to talk about airlines, but accessibility in particular, I'm really honored to do so. I started out uh, as a son of a customer service agent for United Airlines. My father actually started at Capital Airlines, and that's where I got hooked on the industry. After the typical father-son angst, where after seeing the 1985 movie, Wall Street, I said, I'm going to go work there. The airline industry is just crazy and stupid. You know, having seen the furloughs, the layoffs, the move cities for station closers, et cetera. um, I went to the University of Chicago, got a finance degree and wound up using it in the airline industry. Then I like to consider myself as a blind airline executive. And when I say blind, that's not a joke, it's literal. I've been legally blind since birth. I'm almost totally blind today. And I know you guys like old movie quotes at Airline Confidential. One of my favorites is from Butch Cassidy and a Sundance Kid. Boy, I've got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. So I've applied that in my airline career. Mainly my real areas of expertise are airline strategy, network planning, and uh, leadership. You know, I'm learning about culture transformation, accessibility, and uh, technology startups. In my own time, I'm nowhere near an expert. I consider myself an amateur comedian. I like writing poetry and believe it or not, um, play golf even though I can't see the ball. Um, My career has spanned eight airlines and five continents. I started with United Airlines in 1992 Went to Continental, where we overlapped. I went to Alitali in Rome, Air New Zealand in Auckland, New Zealand, Qatar Airways in Doha, Qatar, LATAM in Santiago, Chile, Indigo in New Delhi, India, and now with Avianca in Bogota, Colombia.
1: Mike, that's an amazing background. And the fact that you've been able to do all this while being legally blind just shows how different abilities are just that, just different, not disabilities, which is a phrase that I learned from you. And I learned that phrase, and all of our listeners should check this out if they can, on a great talk that Mike did at IATA recently. You can find this easily on Google by just Googling Mike's name and IATA accessibility, and you'll find it. And what we're going to talk through with Mike initially here are five key points that he made in that talk. So, Mike, you want to sort of introduce the idea and we can start talking about point one.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So accessibility, as you said, I mean, I've I've grown up with it. I know what it's like to be a person with a disability, but in all honesty, um, there's a theory out there, the desirability of difficulty, and my disability has actually become my superpower in many ways. The five points I made at the IATA World Passenger Symposium in November in Bahrain were simply this. Number one, this is a large market. Up to 20% of people have some sort of disability, whether that's visible or hidden. And I was able to hide my blindness for a number of years. That's a whole nother podcast, how I managed to do that. Um, But this is a large market. It's basically broken into four main groups when you think of disability. There's mobility issues, people in wheelchairs. There's visible, like myself, from fully blind to partially blind. There's people with auditory or hearing difficulties and then there's cognitive difficulties. Everybody's pretty much unique and many of them are hidden, which which creates some problems. but it is up to 15, 20 percent of the, the population. Every one of those billion people with a disability is a bit unique. And the other thing, you know, bad news I have for a lot of the listeners, because you're able today, you never know what may happen tomorrow, especially with aging populations much more needed in terms of vision and mobility and hearing as people age so my first point was clearly it's a large market this market i just saw some statistics today scott and ben that there was an increase in disabled people 25 percent employment over the past year or so this is largely due to the fact that the ability to work from home um, getting to the office was one of the biggest problems for people with disability so they're able to get jobs quicker now. And I would say that disabled people are often your best employees because they feel extremely lucky to get a position at a company and they work extremely hard. So again, the wealth is increasing in this community. Um, It's growing and airlines need to think about it. So that's point one, Ben.
2: So Mike, we're more than 30 years after the Air Carrier Access Act. And in my Wall Street Journal career, I wrote uh, about uh, wheelchair problems, um, which is a major issue, which I, I hope we can get into. But tell me what you think is the biggest barrier in the airline industry to accessibility. Where, what needs to change in the industry?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. Um, you know, the barriers are pain points. You know, at Avianca, we have a 27-point customer journey map. Um, that map is, you know, different pain points for different disabilities. Really, honestly, the, the best thing we can do, and I'm going to give credit to Delta Airlines, um, Allison there, you know, she told us when I spoke to her once, asking people how you can help is the biggest thing you can do. So it's really openness by the disability the community to make these disabilities less hidden. I mean, and it's also just awareness in the employees. And IATA has just put out a guideline for the handling of mobility aids on aircraft. One of the biggest wheelchair complaints is their wheelchairs get damaged on the plane. Um, But think about that baggage handler. He may see three wheelchairs in six months. So remembering how he should do it is hard. They've created quick aids for them to look at on a smartphone, et cetera, and give a quick refresher how to load that material so they don't break it. But to your question, Scott, um, awareness to me, it, it's a soft thing, but it goes very far in just making this community known, and then ask the simple question: How can I help you?
2: That's a great point, and I'm glad you mentioned Allison Osband. Um it, With wheelchairs, um, as, as I got deeper into the issue, it, it's quite complicated. The wheelchair manufacturers uh, build them differently, so. What works on one wheelchair may not work on another, and the baggage handler ends up breaking something because they're not used to it. Um, they're very heavy. Uh, the the, uh, the best solution would be if you could remove a seat or two and sort of bolt down the, the wheelchair in the cabin uh, so it doesn't have to go in the baggage hold. But that's a very difficult thing structurally. Um, I'm I'm curious if you see particular solutions that that would help with wheelchair issues right now.
3: Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, solutions out there. You're, you're kind of talking to my point two. You know, Ben talked about my five five points. Point two was the industry needs to stay ahead of this. So again, the work that has just done on these mobility aid guidelines is is fantastic we need to stay ahead of it because as you've talked on previous shows, you know, with seats for families or, you know, garbage fees that uh, Joe Biden's called them and Pete Buttigieg in the US, I mean, we need smart regulation, right? We need regulation that doesn't drive the cost base up so we can still keep this industry affordable. Um, Whether that will mean, you know, better handling the wheelchairs not to break them, whether it'll mean bringing it on board, there's a company in Dallas. I, I believe it's Michelle at a company called Wheels Up. She's been working with Boeing and Airbus. She's gotten the wheelchair to be harnessed down on a plane and meet the 20g um, requirement. Um, you know the solutions are coming out of everywhere, but again, we need to be in front of this. You know we do not want bureaucrats to um, rethink this industry and bring in demands on airlines that uh, you know are just going to Increase the cost base. We want low cost, high impact ideas, and the ideas that they're working on at this firm wheels up. Bless her heart, Michelle understands the the valuable of real estate on board a plane, Um, and we need to keep that that real estate there to keep ticket prices lower. Um, But regulations around the world, accessible toilets is a big issue. Yes, the bringing of wheelchairs on planes um, and you know, even in some jurisdictions, requiring airlines to give free seats for a guide. So it's a multi pronged issue, um, but regulation, I don't think, is the only answer. We need to work with the regulators and we need to find smart solutions. And my point three, Scott, um, from this IATA chat, is some of that will be technology. Um, some of it is just the soft skills of awareness. And, and again, I overemphasize don't say how far awareness can go. When more people see disabled people, they know how to approach them, they know how to help them. And uh, the, the service really, in my humble opinion, um, it has a lot of pain points, but it's, it's clearly getting better.
1: Mike, and I want to bring up the fact that mobility issues are not only wheelchair issues either. I right now have to use a cane for longer distance walking because as my legs get weaker, I find I need that for some stability. Now, I don't need a wheelchair, at least not yet. I may someday. But I see myself as being mobility limited at an airport. I get a little apprehensive when walking down the jetway wondering how big a gap there might be between the jetway and the door, for example. I'm not looking for any regulation to sort of help someone like me, but I see other people at the airports who clearly have some trouble walking but aren't yet in a wheelchair, and those two could really be helped with the how can I help you kind of approach.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Ben, that's also a good, good intro into point four. You know, this is not just an airline problem. It's a travel industry problem. So it's getting to the airport, you know, by taxi, Uber, Lyft, or your choice. It's in the airport, getting from the curb to the check-in. You know, it really is the airport's real estate um, where they want you to visit the duty-free, etc. Right. Getting down the jet bridge, the in-flight service and then getting to your hotel, checking into your hotel, and, and if you go to an amusement park. Um, so it spans the whole travel range of, of, of services and companies involved. And yeah, the wheelchair is not the only answer, right? It, it, it seems that way. It's, it's the hammer we use. And then, you know, if your only tool is a hammer, you see everything as a nail. Um, but the wheelchairs, it's a valuable um, piece of the puzzle. You know, customers today can request wheelchairs. You know, about 4% of customers do today, at least at at our airline. And again, technology is improving here. I spoke to another company recently, Blueberry Technologies. You know, they're working on an autonomous wheelchair that can take you through the airport. Airports are pretty good today in terms of elevators, you know, ramps, etc., Um, but a lot of people don't like the service of a human being always over their shoulder. Um, and for me, you know, the hammer nail is absolutely applicable because I'm blind. I don't need to sit in a wheelchair, but I need a guide when I'm traveling by myself to get to the gate. Um, but that guide's a little bit intrusive, right? Do you really want to go shopping in front of them in duty free? Um, do you really want to stop for a drink? Are they even allowed to sit with you if you want to get a drink? Um, so we, You know, we think of the wheelchairs in this industry that, you know, we know that there's some um, minor abuse of people using them to to get through the airport faster. But I would point out to people the the experience is not as good as it may look like at times. I've been left in places with wheelchairs, Um, I've been, you know, not given any information. But the wheelchair is a tool, you know, we'll continue to use it. And, uh, you know, hopefully, Ben, I mean, as I said, you're an example of an aging population. We're all aging and mobility does become more difficult.
1: You know, Mike, I will give you an industry sort of story on this. On a trip to Boston relatively recently, when you leave the airplane in Boston There's a fairly long walk, including a couple of elevators, to get to where the Uber drivers meet you. They meet you in a garage, but you walk through a walkway and a couple things. And it's not a super long walk, but it's a fairly long walk. So on the way in, I did that, called my Uber driver, went where I had to go. When I went back to the airport later in the afternoon... I was expecting to be dropped off in the place where I picked up the Uber, and I was going to repeat that walk in the reverse way. But instead, the Uber driver drove me right to the front of the terminal. And I said to him, Wow, you drove me right to the terminal. And he said, Yes, I see you have the cane. So, I didn't want you to have to make that long walk. And I said, that's very thoughtful of you. I said, does Uber ask you to do this? He said, you can request this from Uber on the pickup or delivery at any time. And I've been using Uber for years. I never even thought about that. But that's a company that at least says you can tell us you need the help and we'll do what we can.
3: Wow. What a great story. I mean, cause that, that is awareness, right? That is that driver being aware, um, you know, paying attention and noticing, um, something that could help you. And, you know, but awareness also requires ease of access, right? Anything in life, you know, if, if I want to drink more water per day, I'm going to do that. If I keep my water bottle within grabbing distance on my desk, I'm not going to do it. If I have to walk 50 feet to my kitchen, um, so while a lot of these things exist in Uber, again, they need to, to make other people aware of these. They need to constantly be communicating, hey, did you know? And, and again, these are those soft things that really can go a long way um, to, to improve accessibility, get more people flying. Um, you know, that's good for airlines. It's good for airports. It, it's, it's good for people in general, because I still do believe that travel is an important part of life. So again, I think you gave me a great example of awareness, Ben.
1: So remind us of points one through four, since we've talked about them, and then bring up point five.
3: Sure. So so point one was, again, big market, growing market, but a lot of it hidden. Point two, regulation is not the only answer. There's a wave of regulation coming. It's very easy for countries to cut and paste these regulations. There's new regulations proposed in Brazil, in Mexico, in Canada, around the world. We need to get ahead of that curve and work with regulators and do our best job to get solutions in place that don't require regulation. Point three is the solutions are going to be both technical, like autonomous wheelchairs, but then just soft, like awareness and training. Point four, it's not just the airlines and, and something critical here. Governments, airports, Ubers, hotels, we all need to share in this cost. The, the cost to airlines right now, we bear the full cost of the special service request that you can put on your PNR, your reservation, to say, I need assistance. But airlines are paying that full cost today. Quite frankly, I don't think that's correct. And my airport friends will argue with me. But I think people are using wheelchairs to get through the airport as much as to get to the airplane. And then point five I didn't mention is that this isn't our best interest as, as airlines and travel, right? Th- this is a way to get a bigger share of the wallet by making travel accessible for everybody. And that accessibility, universal design, Steve Jobs taught us all about what universal design is. There are solutions for people who are need accessibility help that work great for people who don't. Um, just think about using your smartphone and try to listen to Apple directions if you're walking through the streets of Manhattan with ambulance and fire trucks and you know police cars going by. Much easier to use the haptic, the sense of touch to help guide you through there. So a lot of these solutions will work for everybody, not just the accessibility community, and make it a faster, more efficient, more convenient travel experience. Um, and again, I really want to highlight again You know, low cost, high impact, Um, and copycatting is okay here, right? This is kind of like safety. You know, some proprietary information exists there, but I think it's a place where airlines, airports, everybody can work together to solve these problems.
2: Mike, those are great points, and I really commend you for the awareness that you've brought to the industry and the change you've you've brought to the industry. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about. Uh, airline strategy. Um, and I'm sure uh, the the accessibility issues um, influence that. But w- what do you see as the the main issues these days for airlines um, from a strategic point of view, from a, a network point of view?
3: Yeah. So, Scott, you know, from a strategic point of view, this is how I think about it is, you know, there's some basics we all need to do. We all need to be clean, safe, reliable. And again, I'm still using that from the Continental Airlines Gordon Bethune playbook that you guys have talked about on this podcast. Um, but then how do airlines really compete? We really compete on a thousand different things, but I try to get that down to three. Um, so what are the key three things is cost base, your network and what I call your product hard and soft, customer experience, et cetera. I'm lucky in my career. I've worked for airlines that have focused on all three, right? United Airlines was one of the large network airlines. Indigo in India was a cost-based strategy. Qatar Airways in Qatar was a product-based strategy. My learnings watching financial results of airlines for the last 30 years um, cost beats network and network beats product. You need to focus on all three, but you really need the balance. And nothing goes further, in my humble opinion, than a good cost base, a good efficiency at an airline. And that's simply how I think through strategy. At Avianca, you know, we flipped that strategy um, in March, April of 2020 when we went into COVID. We simply looked at the historical performance of the airline. We were very much a product-driven airline, 100 years old, second oldest airline in the world. Um, network was the second most important thing, and rarely did anyone in the company ever talk about the cost of providing that product. It was just a given that it would follow the the product and network strategy. We flipped that around, and now we're very cost-focused. You know, network is still important. You know, product is important. But we'd rather have affordability, hassle-free and friendly um, than focus solely on on comfort um, and let passengers choose. And we know we're going to lose some passengers, but the overall balance, again, I come back to cost beats network, network beats product. That's, that's my view on strategy, Scott.
1: I really like that three-part way to think of it, Mike, and- Hearing you speak, it gets to what you said earlier about low-cost, high-impact. There are low-cost things about the product that can have a real high-impact, like smiling, saying hello, saying I'm sorry, right? Those are low-cost, real high-impact things.
3: I couldn't agree more. And, and again, I, I think we've got that focus at Avianca. You know, hats off to Indigo in, in India. Um, There is an airline that does does all three of those things well. Great cost base, great network, and great friendly service. And you're right, I think you've had Jonathan Sutter on your show in the past. You know, you can get five points of improvement on customer experience by just smiling and saying thank you and showing empathy, like you said. That's a little bit of training cost, right? It's recruiting the right people onto your team, um, but it is not a fixed cost that's going to stick around with you for the next 20, 30 years.
1: Well, Mike, I want to talk about sort of something that's happened in the U.S. through the pandemic. When the pandemic happened, every airline cut their schedule quickly. They put a lot of people either out of work or on some sort of leave. Some airlines used it for early outs to essentially shed some of their most senior people and when no one was traveling, no one could afford to have a lot of planes up in the air. Now, a year later, when things started to recover, they recovered more quickly than I think most airlines expected, and the airlines seemed to have a problem building back as quickly as they cut down. Now, you run the schedule and strategy for Avianca and have done that at other airlines. Why is it so hard to build back when it's easy to cut?
3: Yeah, so, you know, at Avianca in Colombia, we've been lucky on some things, unlucky on others. And even unlucky might be an exaggeration because it's forced us to to be more commercial and more oriented, but we did not get any government support. Um, You know, we, we did have to go through a Chapter 11, but that allowed us to change our strategy to be better focused on the customers that actually um you know live in our Guatemala to Ecuador geography you know I think a big difference between a developing country so uh, you know uh, we didn't face as much the challenge of the big reg- resignation that you've had in the U.S. and to some degree in Europe you know we, we we were able to retain you know most of our best employees um our employees were you know probably a little more flexible with the company in, in terms of terms so I think in at least in our case, in a developing economy, you know, re- the retention of those employees, the retention of those skill sets um, did allow us to maybe not ramp up faster, but ramp up with with as consistent of service. Right. And we all saw the the kind of really bad things that happened in Europe this summer at airports like Heathrow, where they just didn't have the, the staff. Um, we also you know, had been working with our Aero Seville um, to, to ramp up you know, at a level where we were sure that on-time performance could still you know, meet the criteria we needed. So in Bogota, as an example, you know, we're still at about an 8% reduction in movements at the airport um, because we don't want to overload that system um, and just wind up failing passengers on OTP. And, and our OTP results have been you know, pretty good. Um, through through this pandemic. But Ben, I really think it is that uh, able to retain employees not have to face that great resignation. Um, And look, unemployment in the U.S. is at, uh, I think, a 60-year low. Um, I'm not a politician, you know, but I I think that uh, means that people have other opportunities to to work and airlines, while we all love them, um, we also know that we need to you know, take our families and and have financial objectives. So to me, that's the the big reason on on why perhaps, uh, you know, airlines in South America, India, Southeast Asia have been able to avoid some of the um, operational problems that I think the U.S. and Europe have faced a little more um, hard in this
2: period. So given all that, what do you see as the future of, uh, of air travel, the, 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 the coming challenges to airlines? Um, where, where do you think the industry is and where's it going?
3: Well, you, I know you've asked on this podcast a lot about the business traffic. I'm clearly on the side that says it has changed. It's still important for relationships and sales, but you know, the business travel now has a lot more flexibility that you can leave any day a week, tack on a few days, work from somewhere else. So I think that has changed. You know, the challenges, Scott, um, when I think about change, I think about incremental, transformational and disruptive Um, and the incremental changes. You know, we have a lot of that still going on and and rippling through transformational. Again, we're still in what year 25 of NDC, and that quite hasn't uh, fully happened yet. Um, this accessibility, I think, is a transformational change. I I'm really optimistic about this, um, talking to some other people, we think we might have this completely solved in ten years. Originally, I thought it'll take twenty, but we we think we can make travel more accessible in ten years' time. Um, but you know this industry, you know, the environment that we all work in, and this is kind of you know structure conduct performance thinking, the structure that we work in, Input costs like fuel, heavy labor, heavy capital, fuel prices, exchange rates, interest rates. I mean, Ben, you got to love this one because I remember coming to Continental where Continental was paying something like high 20s on debt. Um, and we've had 30 years where when I mentioned to young guys in finance and say, what's our interest rate strategy? They say, why would you worry about that? Well, <laughs> money can become expensive, guys. And, uh, you know, so, so Scott, we'll continue to see things like that, challenges to pop up, transformational, you know, with with the president's State of the Union. I don't know if anyone else heard this, but they played a clip of Ronald Reagan in, you know, 1980 promising two-hour flights from Washington to Tokyo. Well, clearly that didn't happen, <laughs> um, you know, but... Uh, Sustainable aviation fuel, big topic, I think that's going to happen, you know, big challenge to the industry, limited supply of SAF stock. Um, so getting in, you know, buying some of that in advance, working with people, you know, again, the electric vehicles, you know, the, the, the issues you've talked about, you know, short haul routes, is it best served by buses? Should those buses go straight to the, the gates? I mean, there's so many issues we could talk about on, on how this industry is going to change. But I really like to stick to, you know, the knitting that I know, you know, that cost network product triangle and on on the network side, you know, network planning has kind of bifurcated over the last 30 years. You know, when I started in this industry, you always did a very detailed study on where you wanted to fly. It might take three weeks to complete a study for a single route. Today, you have airlines. I, I think my friend Daniel Schurz at Frontier started something like 220 routes in a single summer season. You know, so the other extreme is is throwing darts at a board. I don't think Daniel, he's way too smart a guy to just do that. But, you know, we, we need to experiment a little bit, try routes faster. I give a lot of credit to Glenn Howenstein at Delta. I think this is how he really pushed Delta forward. Again, I think Delta had a single expansion of 35 or 40 transatlantic routes in a single season um, when he first went there. So a combination of doing the homework analytically, but also having the courage to try some things that you don't think work, and and kind of falling somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And and Ben, this is a quote that I use from you, but you got it from somewhere else I know, right? If you want to stop losing money, well then stop doing things that lose money. Um, So again, as a route planner, sticking to my knitting, if a route's not working after three, four months, it needs to go, or it needs to at least be reduced. You know, we can't pretend that the world's going to change in our favor all the time. We need to be very proactive in this industry, very attentive. Um, and and that's, that's how we outsmart, outwit, and outlast our competitors.
1: That's so right, Mike. And we're fortunate in our industry to have assets that move, yet sometimes people in the industry forget about that.
3: Yeah, you know, um, someone told me early in my career, they said, you know, this isn't planning like General Motors, because General Motors factory, it doesn't have wings and can pick up and move from Tennessee to Japan. But a $40 million aircraft, you know, it can move itself. And, and the aircraft really are our factories. That provides benefits, Ben, right? And be able to be nimble and readjust. Um, but it also really stresses how fast moving this industry is. And again, as a network guy, you know, we all see the same opportunities, right? We can all act on them, um, and often we do, and often we, we act on the same route at the same time, which then means too much capacity in the market. I think it was, I don't know, somewhere in the late 2000s, United and American both announced LA Shanghai on like the same day. There was enough room for one U.S. carrier to fly a 777, but not for two. <laughs> and uh, then they had to fight it out for a few years. And today, I don't think, well, with COVID, obviously, China has not come back yet. But uh, I think they both might have dropped that market in the end. But yeah, nim- nimble um, thinking and nimble assets, um, it keeps me awake at night, Ben.
2: Well, Mike, this has been a fascinating and impression discussion uh, about the industry and the future, the challenges. And, and I really commend you for uh, all that you bring and the, the compassion that you bring um, to the work. Uh, clearly made the industry better and I look forward to, to the next 10 years when uh, we'll, we'll deal with all of these challenges facing the industry. And I think uh, I think travel will continue to flourish. Thanks so much for being with us. It's great to talk to you and, uh, and good luck with all your pursuits.
3: Thank you again with the opportunity, especially to stress the accessibility
2: issues today. So thanks, Ben and Scott. We'll be back with more on Airlines Confidential in a second.
0: Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies.
2: Ben, that was a great interview. I want to mention an exciting event we'll be participating in, Aviation Festival Americas 2023, which will be May 16th and 17th in Miami Beach. You and I will be on stage on the morning of the 17th recording the podcast with the audience and a very special guest. And Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com, that's one word, and click on the banner and use AC50, AC50, to save 50% on your registration. This is the 15th year for Aviation Festivals America, and I've been to several in years past. It's always a great group of industry leaders and excellent, informative, topical sessions. We'd love to meet listeners in Miami. So take advantage of that 50% discount and come see us. I think it will be a great event.
1: I've been to this event a number of times too, Scott, and agree. It's one of the premier aviation conferences held in the U.S. and tends to get lots of industry leaders from the U.S. and Latin America too.
2: Ben, several listeners responded to Mark Dombroff's comments on the Colgan Flight 3407 crash in very different ways. That crash was tragic and also incredibly impactful because in response, Congress passed a law requiring all commercial airline pilots to have at least 1,500 hours of experience before hire. That's made it far more expensive to train to be an airline pilot and contributed to a shortage of pilots particularly captains at regional airlines, as we've discussed. Mark made the point that hours of experience wasn't an issue in the crash and instead called out the crew's lack of rest because of long commutes they chose to get to Newark to report for duty. That was a major issue in the NTSB report. Listener Ryan from Minnesota wrote to us to add context. Ryan argues the first officer in particular chose a fatiguing lifestyle of commuting from her parents' home in Seattle to Newark because she was earning less than $25,000 a year, and it was impossible, Ryan says, to live in the New York area. Listener Peter from Tucson wants to add that one other issue was the captain's capabilities. He had four check ride failures during his training and needed additional training after three proficiency rides at Colgan. Peter says, not all pilots are created equal and any pilot can fail a check ride on any given day, but it's clear to me the captain performed at a substandard level way too often. And our faithful listener, Old crokey from Australia, raised a great point asking, isn't it time that technology was used to monitor those in critical areas such as pilots and air traffic controllers? Old Crokey suggests simple fitness trackers or smartwatches. It's not necessarily the commute that's a danger, he points out. A commuting pilot may have more rest than a pilot living close by. The pilot living close by may have been out all night uh, with friends or who knows what, or didn't sleep or whatever. Old Crokey says, the industry must get serious and do more. Ben, I went back and reread the entire 299 page NTSB report on Colgan 3407 because of the listener comments and because of recent incidents that I think are completely relevant to this accident. The crew's mistakes caused the crash, period. They didn't appropriately monitor speed, and when the stick shaker activated, warning of an aerodynamic stall, the captain did exactly the wrong thing pulling the nose up when he should have pushed it down to gain speed. The first officer, too, mistakenly raised the flaps on her own, uncommanded and in violation of the airline's procedures. They both made basic flying errors. Both pilots commuted and tried to sleep in the crew room before the accident flight. They didn't use a crash pad, which is a shared apartment that commuting crews typically use for sleep. As you know, it's a pilot's responsibility to be properly fit to fly. Those pilots weren't, and that killed people. And by the way, I don't think you can completely blame low wages for the commute. The 24-year-old first officer wasn't earning much, but she had told colleagues that her husband was earning $60,000 a year. And there are plenty of people, many people employed at the airport, in fact, who earn $30,000 a year or less in New Jersey. The first officer likely had a head cold when she got into that cockpit, by the way, and told the captain she didn't want to call in sick because she'd have to pay for a hotel. If she got to Buffalo and then called in sick, the company would pay for the hotel. The bottom line is that both pilots made inappropriate decisions about their rest and fitness to fly. That contributed to slow response and poor decision making, the NTSB said. They were complacent about the risks and responsibilities of the job. And so in light of recent episodes, that crash is a good reminder that everyone involved in flying must always be vigilant to risks and on top of our game.
1: That is a very sobering report, Scott. I read all 299 pages of that report when it first came out. I haven't read them in a long time. I'm impressed you went back to read them again, given what happened this week. But I agree that the lessons from that are really relevant for what's going on. So everyone, fly safe, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Airlines Confidential.
0: This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.